Most of us in healthcare are warm, caring people who are committed to keeping our patients safe and doing no harm. But there are some among us who do the unthinkable and betray our noble profession. On this podcast, we like to shine a light on the good and the bad. Each week, I'll be joined by another healthcare professional, and together we'll dive into these stories while chatting about nursing and healthcare along the way. I'm Tina, a registered nurse, and this is Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Welcome back to another week of true crime and um, not just true crime. We talk about good things that happen on this podcast too. That's why it's called Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And we can sort of chit chat also about nursing and healthcare. So, so glad to have you here. I want to welcome my son, Joel, to the show. Hey, Joel. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) So good to have you. So I thought it would be fun to have Joel on the show. He recorded with me a a couple months ago when it was his birthday. Actually, it was released on his birthday. And then he went to Nashville with us to... Um, help with the all the whole event with Redonda, the Redonda Vaught uh, rally and was such a an important part played such an important part of making sure everything went smoothly all the technical stuff and I really appreciated you know you doing that Joel it's really nice to have it was sort of a family affair yeah well, yeah that was super fun yeah it was really enjoyable <laughs> yeah so de- definitely something different to do I was really pleased with how everything turned out and so of course you guys know if you're familiar with this podcast that we are continuing to fight for legislation in the state of Tennessee that will protect healthcare professionals from being charged criminally for making a medication error while in the process of doing their job. And so we are working directly with our lawmakers, and we have lots of people working on this, lots of people behind it. And it's, I just, it's going to happen. I just know it's going to happen. I have faith in it and I'm super excited about it. In case you're wanting to get involved with this, we are wanting more and more people to get involved because if you live in the state of Tennessee, all the better, please send me an email, tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. I will send you a form. You can sign up and we will put you on the list of people that's we'll be targeting to help us with this event. But also, even if you don't live in Tennessee, we can still use your help. And we're planning on once we get this passed in Tennessee, we're going to move on to other states. Once it's passed in one state, it's easier to get passed in other states. So just to let you know that. I think a lot of people assume that there's a law like this in a lot of places, and there's not. Like, if you talk to someone about this and what happened, they're like, oh, there's a law for that somewhere else. Tennessee needs to get caught up. Like, no, there's this is the first law of this kind, like anywhere. It's kind of mind blowing. Right. Because there are other professions that have the privilege of qualified immunity. And that's what it's referred to. It's called qualified immunity. And basically it means that you don't have just absolute immunity. It's not like you can do anything you want to, but if you are in the process of doing your job and you make a good faith error and you are honest about it, and that is something that we are pushing for because we want to encourage people to be honest. That's the whole point. If you're honest about it, as soon as you make the mistake, you speak up and say something and we're you know, we were able to immediately try to do something 
I mean, the second you know something, you say something, that's a good faith error. We want to encourage that. That's a patient safety issue. That is the safest situation and safest environment in a hospital setting with direct with direct patient care, whether it's a nurse, whether it's a physician, whether it's a respiratory therapist, whoever it is, if you make a mistake, you want people to be comfortable speaking up. And so that's the way this law would work. You would, if you are honest about it and you speak up, you don't try to hide it. You don't try to cover it up. You, you say something, then you have qualified immunity and you are not going to be charged criminally. That doesn't mean that you're going to be necessarily spared any sort of civil litigation. All of that stuff is separate. That stuff has always been there. And that's what we always assumed. I mean, it seems so obvious to me, though. Like, we look at all these different cases on every episode. And obviously, like, these nurses have intention. And you can see, like, a pattern of these things happening where there's obvious intention to do harm. There's a huge difference between that and making a, an actual human error that results in the unfortunate loss of a life. Like human error is a part of every human, obviously. That's why it's called human error. And if you want nurses, you want human nurses doing the job, you're going to have to live with the few percentage a few percentage points of error. That's just how it is. That is the way it is. And you, you will always have a few bad apples that will get through any profession. And you, we do our best to watch out for those people. We do our best to filter out those people. And we don't want them working at the bedside. I have to go to the hospital too. My family has to go to a hospital. So we are always on the lookout for those people. And those people, and we're about to talk about in the bad nurse story this week, we're going to talk about that. So we address that. That's why we do this podcast. We want to shine a light on the bad things that happen. We definitely want people aware of those things, but we believe it is a public safety issue and it's not safe to have an environment where healthcare professionals are not comfortable or not don't feel safe speaking up if they make a good faith error. So if you want to be involved with that, give me a Send me an email, tina at goodnursebadnurse.com. You can join our Facebook group, Nurses March for Redonda's Law. Are you thinking about going back to school to get a master's degree, maybe a family nurse practitioner degree? Well, it's so important to choose the right program. Samuel Merritt University's MSN FNP program has a 100% employment rate after six months. Unbelievable. And Samuel Merritt University has been kind enough to continue to sponsor our podcast, and they want us to let you know they're continuing to offer a $10,000 scholarship to anyone enrolled in their MSN, DNP, or Family Nurse Practitioner programs. If you're interested in getting more information about these programs, you can visit them at smumsn.com. That's smumsn.com. And of course, we'll put that link on our website if you want to just go to goodnursebadnurse.com. I also wanted to remind you that if you're interested in travel nursing, to go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there. And you can also see what they pay, the stipend, the hourly rate, all of that. I'm a travel nurse now with Trusted Health and I absolutely love working for them. So go to trustedhealth.com, be sure and put forward slash good nurse so that they'll know that we sent you there and fill out a profile today. So I guess we can get started with this. And this is actually a bad respiratory therapist. I love respiratory therapists. I hate saying anything bad, but I don't want, I mean, it's always rough, you know, this part of it. That's why I always, when we get to the good part, it's always like, oh, thank goodness, something to redeem us. But at the same time, as I said. Well, I think like, even if you're a respiratory therapist, it'd be interesting to see like a bad respiratory therapist. I know. They can relate even more and see how. You have to be aware that there are people out there who do intend harm. 
And we need to be cognizant of this as professionals and looking out for our patients, looking out for other people's patients, because it's possible for anyone uh, to be in healthcare. It doesn't have to be a nurse. It doesn't have to be a respiratory therapist. It could be a physician. It could be someone that's not even clinical. It could just be someone else who's wanting to do, do harm. Always important to be on the lookout for anything like that. And so that's why we try to bring awareness to these issues. So this is a little different because, you know, a lot of times with the stories that I do, they're, they're, they're already resolved. This one isn't resolved yet, but it's been going on for 20 years. So I'm like, let's talk about it. Let's, let's put it out there. This is kind of and I have a different story. So this is the story of Jennifer Ann Hall. She was a respiratory therapist. In 2002, she was working at this hospital. It's a rural hospital in Missouri, Hedrick Medical Center. She started working there in December of 2001. And very small town, 9,100 people, 90 miles northeast of Kansas City. And she only worked there like nine months. But according to news reports, some coworkers noticed that during her time there, there were 18 different, quote, code blue events. And we know what a code blue, most people know what a code blue event. But for those of you who are unfamiliar, a code blue is what is called when a patient's heart suddenly stops or they may stop breathing suddenly. So it's not necessarily the heart, but if they stop breathing, they get to the point that the people looking over them feel like we need a physician here. We need a provider here because we're going to have to intubate this patient. We're doing CPR. We're going to need mechanical ventilation. This is real. This is about the worst event that could happen at the bedside in a hospital. So 18 times, very unusual in a small hospital to have this many code blue events. So they averaged like maybe one a year up until this five month period. So her coworkers are suspicious. So according to this news article, they claimed that Jennifer was often the person to discover the patients were in distress. And that's a red flag for people. If you have a patient, this is something that is known and it's something that we, you know, that's talked about that if you have a person who everyone kind of jokes about being a quote angel of death, like, oh, you've got a dark cloud over you. Every time this person works, it seems like there's lots of code blues called. There's lots of events like this that happens where patients are in, found in distress for no real apparent reason. They seem like they were doing well. And then it's always this person that's surrounding them. They seem like they like the adrenaline. They seem like they like being involved in trying to rescue them. That's a red flag. So that's what these coworkers were, were noticing. This is in 2002, a long time ago. So nine of those 18 patients died after the events. Nine of them survived. So 50%, that's actually not very good. That's actually, those aren't very good numbers. I mean, you're in a hospital for crying out loud. You would hope that it would be better. So you would think a code blue is more than 50% would survive a code blue? I would hope that in a hospital setting, and it, it, I don't really know the statistics, actual numbers. I worked in a hospital setting for seven years now. I've worked in ICU, I've worked in step down, I've worked in PCU, I've worked all over. And I would say that the amount of times that I have been involved with a code blue that the patient actually died were very minimal. Usually we're able to bring them around. A lot of times they're in, they end up intubated, but most of the time they don't die immediately because you're doing something to, you, you catch it quickly. You know, you, you recognize something's wrong. Something's not right. We need to do something and you get on it. So yeah, it, it does seem like 50% seems like a high number. 
it's been 20 years. I mean, that's a long time. And she just now has been charged with first degree murder in one of the cases. And that is a 75 year old by the name of Fern Franco. Now, in the articles that I have read, Fern Franco is referred to as a he. And so I'm assuming it's a male, but I'm not 100% sure. So there was an investigation that started about 10 years ago by a prosecutor in Livingston County by the name of Adam Warren. Now, this prosecutor says that Franco died of lethal doses of succinylcholine, which of course we know is a medication that's similar to Vecaronium that we have all become familiar with over the past three years with the Redonda Vaught case. So it is a paralytic. It's only used in situations where the patient's going to be intubated because their muscles are paralyzed, including the diaphragm and accessory muscles that are used to help you breathe. So you have to have mechanical ventilation if this medication is administered. So they also said they found morphine in in Franco's system. The prosecutor did not reveal any suspected motive, nor did he indicate why it had taken a decade to investigate the case. So I said it was 10 years ago, which meant it had been 10 years since the event happened before they ever started investigating. But they ran autopsy. Like, Well, they must have, or he wouldn't have known that there was succinylcholine. Would they not have just seen the medications in there that weren't supposed to be in there and then said, why were these medications in this patient? I almost wonder. So... The succinylcholine is not something that is just automatically tested, you know, in an autopsy. Yeah, yeah. So I just wonder if they kept the blood samples and had, you know, were able to 10 years later out of curiosity, like, let's just test it. I don't know for sure if that's the case, but I just wonder if maybe that wasn't something that happened. So Jennifer Hall's attorney, Matt O'Connor, said she's innocent. And that as a respiratory therapist, she did not have access to the drugs, succinylcholine and morphine, that were found in the patient's system. He said she became a scapegoat for the deaths at Hedrick because of her criminal history. So this is significant. So, you know, you may be listening to this and thinking, well, it's been 20 years She's a respiratory therapist. She doesn't even have access. Like, I I could see people listening to it. I kind of had that thought, too, when I read this. But then this sort of turns things in a little different direction. Yeah. So apparently in 2001, Jennifer Hall, she was 20 years old. She was working, obviously, as a respiratory therapist in another hospital. This is before she worked at the hospital where this event happened. This is in Harrisonville, Missouri. She was charged with setting a fire at that hospital. And at her trial later that year, the prosecutor speculated that she might have wanted to become the center of attention by heroically putting out the fire. So the evidence supporting that theory was that she appeared at work the day of the fire with a new hairstyle. (laughs) This is insane. I, I can't even believe how crazy that is. But that is what they used to convict her. They convicted her on that? They did. Her hair was curly rather than straight. And this day, for some reason, she came to work and her hair was what they would consider done up. You know, like she obviously had tried to fix her hair maybe. So a Cass County jury found her guilty of arson and she was sentenced to three years in prison. So in 2004, a trial judge 
set aside the verdict based on ineffective assistance of counsel. Her lawyer had failed to investigate evidence definitively showing that the fire had resulted from an electrical short. I mean, that's pretty, that's bad. I mean, that's that's, awful. That's frustrating. I mean, she went through all of this and there was evidence apparently out there that her defense attorney should have had access to. They just didn't try hard enough. She's convicted. She spent a year in prison because of this. And actually, That's she insane. was insane. I know. And, and it, it's actually the time in between she was her being convicted and her actually going to jail is the five month period that she was working at this other hospital when all these deaths occurred. That's what's so crazy. It's like, how did they not see this on a background check? That is crazy to me. She had a retrial in 2005. She was acquitted. But her attorney believes that because of her spending a year in prison for this crime, she was targeted and used as a scapegoat for the spike in deaths at the hospital. Now, it's unclear if she is going to face additional murder charges into, you know, of the other deaths from 2002 at Hedrick. The prosecutor declined to interview and the Livingston County Sheriff, Steve Cox, didn't respond to any email messages that the reporters were sending. And April Franco, which is Franco's granddaughter, is saying that she hopes they get to the bottom of it, but she's wanting to withhold judgment. She says, you know, they've been waiting for answers for 20 years, and they would love to have some answers as and some justice, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it should be extremely obvious. Like, they should have ran enough blood tests to be able to see, was this drug put in their system or not? Is there some kind of correlation that we can see between all these 18 patients? It, it should be very obvious with that many people involved, if she was involved or not. With the only evidence being that she was, you know, there were this many cases within this time, of, this time span. That's not enough. It shouldn't be enough. But it, like logically, it seems very suspicious. Yeah, but you would, I would hope that wouldn't be enough. But because just because, I mean, it has been 20 years, how could they possibly, I mean, how could they have evidence is what I'm wondering, because if they have evidence, why in the world do they not do it before now? Yeah, yeah. Where, how did the evidence just materialize 20 years later? It's really, this whole thing is kind of confusing to me. And I don't understand how hospitals aren't able to, easily like accurately say what the cause of death is like we should even in 2002 we should have the technology to see what killed the person i mean they said that succinylcholine was in the patient system and it shouldn't have been but all 18 that i don't know because they're only talking about the one yeah so like one one had more one had Mm -hmm. that medication that doesn't do it that doesn't say anything i mean that doesn't mean that the others didn't have it it's just that they're focusing on the one like it seems very likely that did happen, but you can't say that at this point. Welcome, Leah. I just wanted to chat with you a little bit about your experience with CBD Stat. Which product do you actually use? So there's four products, the roll-on, the cream, the salve, and the oil. The two that I use every day are the cream and the oil. What is your biggest benefit? How does it help you? The cream 
I put on every day after work, I'll shower and then I'll put it on my feet just to help my arches. No more shin splints, just my feet feel more comfortable. And the cream has been a lifesaver there. And then I use the oil to help me sleep. So I just switched jobs. I had been working nights for the last eight years. So the oil was huge on helping me come home and actually get quality of sleep throughout the day. And I wake up feeling well-rested and not groggy like some other medications have made me feel in the past. I didn't realize that about the feet and I have plantar fasciitis. So now I literally cannot wait to get off here and go try that. And then just the sleep benefit, that one is definitely well known. I hear that a lot in the feedback that I've gotten. As you guys know, their products are 100% THC free. CBD Stat has a team of engineers that invented a very unique and efficient process to produce CBD isolate, which is the purest form of CBD. They only offer very strong products, greater than a thousand milligrams. If you guys are interested in CBD stat in their product, you can go to cbdstat.care forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. Be sure and put the forward slash good nurse, bad nurse in there so they know that we sent you there. cbdstat.care. Be sure and put .care instead of .com forward slash good nurse, bad nurse. It's May, and you know what that means. Nurses Week is coming up. And Echo loves their nurses so much that they decided to amplify Nurses Week and turn it into Nurses Month. They're celebrating nurses all month long to show their appreciation and support for our contributions to healthcare. So in honor of Nurses Month, they are giving away a grand prize of $1,000 toward a trip of your choice. They know that nurses are some of the hardest working people in healthcare, so they want to give us a chance to take some time to relax on them. First place will be a $1,000 gift card toward a trip of your choice. Second place is a $500 gift card towards a flight of your choice. Third through fifth place will be $50 spafinder.com gift cards. Submitters can also mention at Echo Health and hashtag Amplify Nurses in an Instagram post for a chance to win instant prizes throughout the month of May. Winners are going to be announced June 6, 2022. You can submit to the sweepstakes at echohealth.com forward slash campaign forward slash sweepstakes. You know, the amplification of Echo Core is something I've come to rely on every day that I work at the bedside. With 40 times amplification and active noise cancellation, the 3M Litman Core Digital Stethoscope is becoming the go-to stethoscope for nurses all over the country. So go to echohealth.com forward slash campaign forward slash sweepstakes. That's echohealth.com forward slash campaign forward slash sweepstakes. So if this patient had succinylcholine in his system, and it absolutely should not have been there, then clearly someone did something to the patient. But the thing is, why is it because why do you think it's this respiratory therapist just because she was there? Yeah. Because this is a small hospital. Chances are, I mean, a lot of times there's like one respiratory therapist for the whole, for an entire floor. I mean, for, there, I don't know for sure, but I would guess that there was probably one respiratory therapist for like this whole entire area. So it would not be unusual for the respiratory therapist to show up in an emergency event, if something was not going right. So it's, mm -hmm. I, if it were me, I would say it's not at all unusual that she would have been there when this happened. Yeah, that's true. The respiratory therapist, especially when it comes to something, you know, a patient being in distress, in distress for you know, their breathing, their increased work of breathing, their desatting, whatever they, your respiratory therapist is your lifeline. That's who you want there. They're going to rush to the bedside and be there and be the expert because they are the expert for all things respiratory. Yeah. 
What is interesting, though, is that her co-workers seemed to be the mm -hmm. ones suspicious, which makes me a bit more suspicious because I kind of would look to her co-workers to see, is this something that you would expect her to do or not? I like to try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And especially yeah, and when this person has not, she has not been tried. And so I don't want to in any way, she's innocent to pr proven guilty. Right. Just assume, yeah, just assume she's not innocent. I mean, it's pretty clear at this point that no one knows for sure. There's really no way to say for sure either way. Yeah. And the thing is that sometimes people have sort of abrasive personalities. They don't come off very well. They maybe don't play nice in the sandbox with their coworkers. And then if something happens, they're the ones going to be thrown under the bus because they just don't, you know, they, they're not in the clicks. So a lot of times really respiratory therapists and, and RNs and, and, and nurses don't necessarily get along real well. I'm, I'm ashamed to say that, but it's the truth. And I, I, I pride myself on not being that person because I really respect res the respiratory therapists that I work with. I value them as healthcare professionals and for what they, they're experts that they are. And I try to encourage other nurses to do that too. Um, but I do see a lot of tension between the professions because of just not understanding what one, not understanding what the other does and one thinking the other should be doing something. There's a lot of crossover and a lot of, in some of the tasks. Yeah. And it's a stressful environment as well. So you're just going to have, you got to have that person to be frustrated at. Like that's just how Yes. And there, is. there is a lot of crossover. There are a lot of shared interventions, a lot of shared tasks. Like for example, you have a patient who has a trach a tracheostomy. It needs to be cleaned. They need to be suctioned. You need to change out their dressing. Those are things that a nurse can do. Those are things a respiratory therapist can do. And so if the respiratory therapist is really busy and have lots of patients and multiple floors, which can happen, and the nurse also has more patients than he or she can take care of, then the, the respiratory therapist and the nurse may be thinking to, each, to themselves, the other should be taking care of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. That sort of thing happens yeah. a lot. And yeah, stepping on each other's toes. So I don't necessarily want to just say, oh, well, if her coworkers suspect her, you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely not. Yeah. You don't know what the environment is there, the work environment. You can't just say it. Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to assume. Well, she pleaded not guilty. She's 41 now. She pleaded not guilty. She is in jail without bond. Her attorney said that he is going to be seeking bond so that she can get chemotherapy treatment. She has leukemia. There was a hearing that was set for May the 27th, but as we're recording this, it's just a few days beyond that. And there really isn't any information about what happened in that hearing. If it even happened, sometimes those things get rescheduled. So we really don't know whether or not she was granted bail or in able uh, to be released from jail. So according to news articles, the county coroner said hospital officials were alerted to concerns about her, but quote, did everything in the world to cover it up to avoid bad publicity. So there was no criminal investigation at the time the events happened. Because as we find out in a lot of these cases, the hospital is trying to save face. They don't want it getting out that multiple patients died under suspicious circumstances. They do that is terrible publicity. So I'm I've done multiple. I mean I've done so many of these stories that it's just this is what happens. Yeah, this is part of the course. Yeah, like 
hospitals will do anything, pay any amount of money to cover it up. That's sad. That is sad. Yeah. It is. It's kind of pathetic. It's crazy that it's just accepted that we just, the hospitals will just pay money to families to not say anything. And that's just, that's just how it happens. I know. And I've seen it time and time again. And then by the time it comes out, it's like, why are we just now finding this out? And then when it comes out, it's when the nurse Mm -hmm. is being prosecuted and no one cares about the hospital. It's all about the nurse who either made a mistake or was actually doing something And then the hospital's glad to let the nurse carry that whole burden on his or her shoulders, right? So a wrongful death lawsuit naming the hospital and the company that now operates at St. Luke's Health System was filed in 2010 on behalf of relatives of five of the patients who died. So this is interesting because if the news articles are accurate, the prosecutor's office didn't start investigating these deaths until after the hospital was sued by relatives of the patients. And the Missouri Supreme Court actually tossed the lawsuit in 2019, ruling that it was filed after the statute of limitations had run out. It's just really unfortunate because, you know, I don't know. It seems like that maybe the family didn't know to do it. It's like because everything was being covered that's up. That's fair. I, yeah. And that's not your first instinct is like, who can I sue? Like, your instinct is to mourn the loss and then... After the water clears, then you start thinking right. about stuff like that. You know, and if you look at the, in, there are several patients here, and they sort of tell a little bit about each one. There was a World War II veteran, Charles O'Hara. He was 88. He was admitted for evaluation of high temperatures, vomiting, and agitation. He died two two days later. There was a 37-year-old, David Harper. He had been hospitalized with pneumonia, but the lawsuit said he was much better and that he was about to be discharged. And then he died on March 20th in 2002. A 49-year-old, Shirley Eller, was a day away from going home after being treated for pneumonia when she collapsed and died on March 9th, 2002. And then Eller's death was attributed to, quote, natural causes, the same as others who died. And her sister found that really puzzling she said she smoked, but otherwise was very healthy and active. Did any articles say when she was diagnosed with leukemia? I didn't see that. I, that, I was kind of surprised when I read that in that one article. I was like, oh, this is the first I've heard this mentioned of. So it would be an interesting piece of information for the prosecution because, I mean, if that happened, if she found that out in that time frame. But 20 years ago. That could be a potential motive. It's like 20 years. I mean, that's a long time. Well, it was 20 time. years. So she's got... Yeah, no, okay. So she, they still have no, no motive at all. So apparently she was placed on administrative leave three days after Franco's death. This is the one that she's being charged you know, criminally for. So three days after his death and the Code Blue incidents, and then after she was placed on administrative leave, according to this report and the police, everything sort of returned to historical frequency. In other words all the code blues that had been happening, everything just kind of calmed back down. Right. Really? She was fired five months later, fired months later, but not because of the patient's deaths. O'Connor said she was fired after hospital officials learned she had been convicted of an arson fire at another small Missouri hospital, Cass Regional Medical Center in Harrisonville, where she previously worked. She was free on appeal when she took the job and later spent a year behind bars before being acquitted at the retrial. As we said earlier, so, O'Connor... This is an interesting case. Right, it is. It's so interesting. Because you even... like 
at this point, it's pretty obvious that she was involved. Like she was the reason why these things were happening. But did she know that she was doing it? Or was, was she just making this mistake that she thought she was doing the thing right? She was thought she was using one thing and just kept doing the same thing over and over. And well, it I don't necessarily these... think that it's obvious that she was was doing it. I mean, because... I mean, it was very consistent, the numbers of Code Blues. Before mm-hmm. she started, it spiked. She leaves and it instantly goes back down. Okay, well, think about this. A She starts working there. There's someone else who, for whatever reason decides to do something like this and they have it out for her and they deliberately try to make things like this happen when she's around so that they can then at some point say, Hey, you know what? Every time these code blues happen, she's, she's been here and she's, they only started when she came. And of course that's, if there is such a person that's doing something like this, trying to set her up, they would, of course, quit after she leaves. I, th- I, I think That's you have true. to give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, she's innocent until proven guilty. And we we don't really know anything. All we know are what we read in these news articles and what we re- read in their police reports. And clearly the police, you know, have arrested her for a reason. They believe they have enough evidence. They really believe that. I mean, they flat out say it, say it in the arrest report, you know? Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I also know that I do stories about yeah. people who were wrongfully convicted. So I it's I I reserve yeah. judgment. Yeah. <laughs> that is totally possible that mm-hmm. someone else had it out. And for even her. if someone else so didn't have it out for say. her, but they were the ones doing it and then they of course just used her as a Right. Ploy and then when she quits, of course to, they're going to quit because yeah. So I feel like, you know, you, you kind of have to give her the benefit of the doubt and I I don't see how in the yeah, world cuz they they would pin it on the respiratory therapist if cuz they would know that's kind of more her responsibility so it'd be easy to pin it so respiratory therapists do not administer drugs like that they give breathing treatments they give respiratory medications so they do have access to the omni they can get in there because they get their respiratory medications but they don't necessarily have access to the paralytics and That's morphine. That's true. Yeah, now that I think about it, that doesn't make any sense. It honestly doesn't make as much sense that she would be the main uh, suspect here because she. it would be pretty obvious if she's administering any kind of medication, why is she administering medication? Like Someone should instantly see that and see that it's wrong. I mean, it's really hard for me to imagine her being convicted of this at 20 years. But... Stranger yeah. things have happened. Yeah. I, if it goes to a jury, Definitely. you just don't know. Definitely stranger yeah. things have you happened. You do not know what a jury is going to do. So I guess she's just going to have to face a jury. And if she doesn't want to, you know, enter a plea deal, she, I don't know. It's She's going through a lot. If she doesn't, you know, she was convicted once. So she knows, you know, that a jury can, you know, she has to know. So yeah. if, they're, if they offer her a plea deal, she may actually take it, even if she's innocent, just because. Yeah. And even in that case, it's seemed with the limited amount of information that we have that she really shouldn't have been convicted. Yeah, I, 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 I wasn't there, I can't say. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on this one and see how things turn out. I'll keep an eye on, try to keep you guys updated. 
Hey, nursing students, graduation season is already in motion, and now it's time to plan for the next steps in your career. We know when I started my career, I remember feeling so scared. I was so overwhelmed and just felt really vulnerable. That's why I recommend checking out the nurse residency program with HCA Healthcare. HCA Healthcare's year-long nurse residency program is tailored to support newly graduated nurses and ease that first-year anxiety that everybody experiences. They have wonderful benefits like continued education, including state-of-the-art simulation training. They have student loan assistance and tuition reimbursement, endless career growth opportunities, and more. Plus, HCA Healthcare gives you the opportunity to advance your career in one of the largest healthcare systems in the country. And you'll have support from a community of caring, experienced nurses and fellow nurse residents. Don't wait. Students who are preparing to graduate and recent grads are eligible to apply to the nurse residency program at HCA Healthcare. Learn more today at careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. Again, that's careers.hcahealthcare.com slash residency. HCA Healthcare, an equal opportunity employer. Did you know that you don't have to go all across the country to be a travel nurse? You certainly can, but you don't have to. I literally took an assignment that's an hour and a half away from my house, and I love it. I can stay in a hotel room if I want, or I can drive back home. So it's the best of both worlds for me. For my next assignment, we're going to get a cabin in the mountains that's about two hours from our house, so it'll really be like a little getaway. Also, one of my really good friends is going with me so we can share expenses. You guys, even if you're just a little curious about travel nursing, go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile so you can see what kind of jobs are out there and what they pay. Go to trustedhealth.com forward slash good nurse and fill out a profile. So I guess that brings us to our good respiratory therapist. So if we kind of pick on one type of healthcare professional, I usually try to find a good story to sort of redeem that profession. So all respiratory therapists are (laughs) awful. They all try to kill people. And (laughs) that's what we don't want to say. So, and obviously I love, I love respiratory therapists. They, I work very closely with them in my job and I appreciate them so much, their knowledge, their skills, they're they're amazing people. I think a lot of people don't even understand, don't even know what respiratory th- therapists do, how important they are to the healthcare team and in, in the hospital setting. What they don't get paid enough. <laughs> they oh, they're not respected enough. And so I love to give them shout outs as much as possible. So this is a really interesting one because this is not something that happened at the hospital. This is something that happened in her private life. And this is a respiratory therapist by the name of Susan Brandt. And she was at home with her husband, Brian. It was like nine, nine o'clock at night on May the 2nd. This just happened, 2022. She got out of the shower, getting ready for bed. Her husband, Brian, is sitting there, in his, sitting up in bed on his iPad. You can just vi- you know visualize this, talking to each other a little bit. All of a sudden, she heard her husband let out a loud, what she says is a loud, strange snore. And she told him, that he was going to hurt his neck if he was going to sleep sitting up like that. And she got up to walk around the bed to adjust his pillows. So by the time she got to the other side of the bed, he was in a full-blown seizure. She said, he has the bluest eyes and his skin matched his eyes. How scary is that? She immediately grabbed his ankles pulled him to the bottom of the bed, took the pillows out from under him. By that point, he, she said he was pasty un, and unresponsive, and nothing. She, there was nothing she could do to wake him up. She felt for a pulse, 
could not find a pulse. She immediately started CPR. This is so important. And I love to be able to tell this story because I want people listening to this to understand how important it is. If you find someone unresponsive, if you cannot find a pulse, get on the chest immediately and do good quality compressions. It is so important. As a respiratory therapist, she said she had performed CPR countless times and was able to get into that rhythm right away. She said, I have a lot of guardian angels floating around me because I just kept my cool through the whole thing. I'm so impressed with her. That is, that's got to be so hard to do in an emergency with a loved one and nobody else around you. So she said after a few rounds of CPR, she ran to the front door, unlocked it, turned on the light, called 911, went back to the room, continued CPR. The response team got there and they took, of course, they took over. They brought a Lucas device, which is a machine that does the compressions for the first responders to allow them to focus on other things that they need to do. She said, I kept going back and looking to see how they were doing. And she said, I just didn't have that much hope at that point. That must have been so scary for her. I can't even imagine. So once they were able to get a pulse, he was transferred to the Cleveland Clinic. And Dr. Lisa Derrick attempted to put in a ventilator, but he fought it off and woke up at about 10.30 p.m. So remember this happened. But they didn't have a pulse? Right. She did not have a pulse. This all started at 9 p.m. So by 10.30 he was awake. So this was the worst type of arrest that a human can possibly have, according to these doctors. That's crazy. And even though he had the, basically the worst heart attack you can have, and only 3% of people who have this type of heart attack actually survive if they have it you know, out in the, out in the field, you know, n- not in the hospital, only 3% survive it. He survived. That is amazing. Is that 3% at all? Or is that 3% out of the field? That is 3% in the community. Okay, okay. He was then transferred to Cleveland Clinic's main campus via squad car and immediately taken to the ICU where doctors from the main campus took over. So Brian Brandt said that he remembered in the ride over that all of the bumps, every time they'd hit a bump, he could feel it because he his wife had broken ribs and his sternum oh, yeah. was fractured from doing compressions. Very common to fracture ribs and the sternum when you do chest compressions correctly. I mean, can you do correct chest compressions without breaking something like that? You can. It's just that you're supposed to go, you know, like two inches in and you're right there on the sternum. And a lot of times they're older people and their bones are, you know, not the strongest. Maybe if you had better positioning, like if you could get them in a better posture, maybe that would help. But Maybe. Uh, I would say also, if you're trying to do really good compressions, you may get a little overzealous too, you know, and just like your adrenaline. Yeah. It's right, better safe I than think. sorry. You know, you'd rather have broken yeah. ribs and live. <laughs> so that's why it's important uh, when in, in people who are listening to this who are um, healthcare professionals know that take BLS and ACLS, you know, it's important if you have another person for other people that are witnessing the compressions to watch the compressions and kind of coach you through it and say, hey, you need to go deeper or hey, that's, you know, slow down a little bit. You know, s- sometimes you just get your adrenaline pumping and you before you realize that you're going too fast and you're not giving the heart a chance to fill back up, you know, so... 
good quality compressions. It's very important. She obviously did everything just right. And I'm just so incredibly impressed and amazed by her. And I know her husband is thankful for her. He actually went under mitral valve repair and had a, a maze procedure and had to have a pacemaker and a, a defibrillator installed. She said he should not even be on the earth, let alone without any repercussions from this. So a lot of times when patients in the community have a heart attack, you know, go into cardiac arrest, there's a lack of oxygen, not only to the heart, but also to the brain. And so they can suffer what's called an anoxic brain injury because they don't get perfusion. Your blood's not pumping in the brain if it's not pumping, if your heart's not pumping. And so you can literally suffer brain injury and never be the same cognitively. And he didn't have any deficits because of this event. Unbelievable. That's yes. how you know she did it right. That's how you know, because you know the blood was flowing all right. like, to the brain and everything. That's, I know. That's and it's so important that we, anyone listening to this podcast has the ability to do this. You can take CPR classes. And if you're ever in a situation where someone, you know, just drops immediately, very quickly, turns purple, something horrible just happened. And if you, you feel for a pulse, if you don't feel a pulse, you get on the chest right away and start doing what you learned in your CPR class. So I guess that's, that does it for this episode of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. Jill, do you have anything else you want to say? No, I'd say that that was a pretty incredible story. I don't know that many people could have done that no matter how much knowledge that they had or experience. It's one thing to know how to do CPR. It's another to do it perfectly in the situation where that your loved one is the one you're doing it on. So props to her. Yes, exactly. I know. I know. So amazed. I'm so amazed. And so just really proud of her. And I know, I'm just happy for for both of them. I, that, that could have yeah. ended so much differently. So really happy for them. I mean, that's going to be a life-changing experience for him just to have that near death. And he kind of is going to be appreciating life, I'm sure. <laughs> and appreciate his wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I guess that wraps it up for another episode of Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. I want to remind you guys that we are going to be having another... It's We had a PodCon back in November. We actually are changing the name to Nurse Creator Con because we've invited lots of people who don't who aren't just on podcasts. They're also on social media. The Nurse Erica is going to be there. MikeWithSimpleNursing.com is going to be there. And the nurse Sam is going to be there. APR and beauty is going to be there. So many different people. Of course, our fav favorite, pod favorite podcasters, Annie with Up My Nursing Game, Tom and Ben with Will Continue to Monitor podcast. And obviously I'm going to be there too. So, so excited. It's September the 24th. It's going to be in Austin, Texas. So start be sure and get your PTO in so that you can come to Austin, Texas. It's going to be different this year, you guys. It's going to be kind of geared toward what can you do with your degree, with your nursing degree, and kind of take your things into a different area if you want to. If you don't want to be at the bedside anymore, or maybe you want to be at the bedside, but you want to have like maybe something on the side that you're also doing, writing a book, writing a course, being on social media, starting a podcast, all sorts of things, just running a business. We have the, all of these people, they're experts in all of these things. So we're basically going to be doing these masterclasses where people are going to be sharing their knowledge on 
how to grow your social media, how to do, you know, Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and all that stuff. These people know Jessica Seitz, obviously, is going to be there. She's the Facebook master and all things social media. So we're going to do that in the first half. That The second half in the evening, we're going to have a taco bar and a, a cash bar, and we're going to have lots of entertainment. It's going to be so much fun. I am so excited. Jessica and I are doing our weekend update show that we did on the Nurse Con Cruise, and we're going to there'll be different material, same format. And Mike with Simple Nursing is going to be debuting a new song. He does these parodies that are hilarious that help educate, but they're also really funny. He's going to debut his new song, and we're going to be shooting a music video there. We're going to do a live podcast, a roundtable style podcast, and we're going to do Family Feud. This sounds like so much fun. I cannot wait. So I would love, love for any of our listeners that can make it to be there September 24th. We're going to uh, follow us on social media because we will start putting the links. We haven't quite gotten the links out there yet for you to be able to purchase tickets, but I wanted to give you a heads up and send me an email at tina at goodnersbadnurse.com if you want me to send you a link to that so you can be the first because the tickets are limited. We It's a small venue. It's in a little art gallery in Austin, the coolest place ever. So it, there aren't a whole lot of in-person tickets for this, but we'd love to have you. Well, I guess that's it. You can follow us on social media, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse, um, on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And I also want to remind you that even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, be a good nurse and a good respiratory therapist. <laughs>